0: There is a a common saying that goes, there is no place like home. Home is one of those words that brings such a fond memory to our hearts and meaning to our lives. Home is where you feel like you belong. But not everyone has that experience. In the Congo of Africa, there were two girls aged 12 and 13, who were among five children who lived in a Christian family. The father had no job. Food was hard to come by. And one day, tempers were short. So one day, the girl's stepmother called them terrible names and blamed them for their family's misfortunes. This made them feel rejected and hated. So, they decided to run away. But they soon found themselves without jobs, money, without shelter, and without a family to support them. This is a a great danger for, for girls in the Congo like this. They usually end up having to sell their bodies in prostitution just to survive other times they end up being exploited for sex trafficking their life is about to be ruined but there was a a christian organization a christian ministry they uh, they they share their stories uh, they share the gospel with with girls like this who have run away from home. And when, they, uh, when the girls uh, receive Christ, they usually share their personal testimonies at a church. And it was while sitting in a church service, hearing the testimony of another kid that gave this father hope to find his two girls. With the help of this organization, this father eventually found his girls and brought them back home. Now, I love that story when I read it because although these girls were treated like they didn't belong and were estranged from their family, God used the message of Christ to give the father hope to bring his daughters back home. If someone has ever treated you as an outsider, or if you have ever said, I don't belong here, then you know exactly the ache in our hearts that we have to belong. Perhaps you grew up in a home where you never felt like you belong. Perhaps you wake up every morning in a home and you don't feel like you belong there. Perhaps you work at a job in which you do not feel like you belong there, or perhaps you've never found your place in the world where you truly feel like you belong. This angst that we have to belong is something that we cannot avoid. God has built it into the fabric of our soul, and it can Only be satisfied by Christ. In the Christian life, we can lose sight of how to find that ultimate place where we belong. And sometimes, sometimes, we just need a reminder of where to look. So I'm here to remind you today that if you are in Christ Jesus, then you have a wonderful hope. The beauty and the magnificence of the gospel is that God doesn't just save you from your sins, as glorious as that is. He also tells you that you belong. He says to you, you are home. And that is precisely what Paul wanted to communicate when he penned the words we find in Ephesians two eleven through 13. If you have your copy of God's word, can you turn there with me? And I'll read, starting in verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of christ this is god's word you can give the title of this message no longer strangers we are going to look at six steps paul takes to encourage gentile christians regarding how much their situation has radically changed in christ we will spend most of our time in ephesians 2 12 and 13, but I want to take just a moment to set the stage for those two verses by summarizing verse 11. In Ephesians 2.11, Paul begins his transition from teaching on salvation by grace through faith to an explanation of our unity in Christ. In writing to Gentiles, by the way, I thought you should know that this word "gentiles" in verse eleven is the Greek word "ethnos." It is where we get our English word for ethnic or ethnicities. It refers to people who are not Jewish by birth. This is likely here, uh, everyone here in this room. Well, Paul he begins in verse eleven by stating that these Gentile Christians are still called uncircumcised by traditional Judaism. In this way, they are labeled as outsiders. In complete contrast to this, the Jews who saw circumcision as an external sign of membership among God's people, they called themselves circumcised. In this way, they believed that they belonged to the family of God because they were circumcised. On top of that, this term uncircumcised is a term of derision and that underscored the hatred and the contempt the Jews had for the Gentiles. So with just one word, these Christians were labeled as outsiders and treated as outsiders. To most traditional Jews, Gentile Christians were people who were not fellow citizens and members of the household of God. In other words, they didn't belong. In essence, Paul's concluding point in verse 11 is that these attitudes were entirely man-made. Taking part in the physical act of circumcision was something that people could do, but it was only a symbol. Paul, in essence, says that this circumcision that is the most essential, that is the thing that only God can change, is the circumcision of the heart that is the new spiritual life received by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. It is through Christ that all people can be saved and become a member of God's one united family. In fact, Paul will go on to say in Ephesians 2.19 to his Gentile readers, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Critical to verse 12 is the word therefore at the beginning of verse 11. In short, verse 12 has to do with our response to the reality that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. In essence, the therefore in verse 11, tells us that our response to the gospel to save us from our sins is to remember something. When we are labeled and treated in a way that does not reflect who we truly are in Christ, our response as Christians is not to demand respect, but Paul says it is to remember. The word remember at the beginning of verse 12 is a noteworthy imperative. It is the first imperative in the book of Ephesians, and there is not another imperative until chapter 4. Moreover, this is a present tense command. So it is a calling to not just remember one time, but to continually remember. In the mind of the Apostle Paul, remembering our former desperate, desperate condition prior to salvation is not a depressing activity because our story doesn't end in a heap of bad news. It marks the beginning of the good news of what God has done to bring us near in a relationship of belonging to him. So, for this reason, Paul's first reminders, first five reminders, I should say, are bad news. But, in the last reminder, Paul has some good news of belonging that is greater than we've ever imagined and that it is beyond anything we can seek after in this world. If you look at your notes, the first of these six reminders is this. He reminds them they were once separated from Christ. They were once separate from Christ. Observe the beginning of verse 12. Paul says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. The clue to the time Paul is thinking of when he says at that time is the word Christ. Christ here is Drawn from the Hebrew term Messiah, the anointed one. Given the context of this verse, Paul is saying that they were were separated from the messianic hope of Israel. So, Paul here is working from the premise that if we want to appreciate what it means to be in Christ in the New Testament, we need to remember what it means to be separated from the messianic hope in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, an announcement was made by God to Israel in Isaiah forty-two one through four. Of uh, uh, this verse talked about a coming servant. The, this servant would be anointed of God. God further described the certainty of his coming in Isaiah 42, 5 through 8. The Jews would would call this servant-deliverer the Messiah. This is just one example of many messianic prophecies. These messianic prophecies looked forward to the coming of Christ. The hope of the Messiah would have been a a great comfort and a great joy to believing Jews. The hope of Christ comforted their hearts and gave them purpose and a sense of destiny. God planned to send Christ to be the deliverer of the world, which, by the way, includes Gentiles, but He gave Israel, a behind the curtain preview to his plan. Why? Well, there are likely many reasons why God chose to proclaim the hope of the Messiah to Israel. At the very least, we know that only God truly understands how deep our sin problem is, He knows that we need a Savior. We need hope that we will be saved from our sins. God is our sovereign, omnipotent creator, and he knows that the human heart aches to truly know that we belong to someone that is greater than our sins. God began unfolding a wonderful plan of redemption first to Israel because it pleased him but also because they needed to hear it. But in verse 12, Paul says that the Gentiles were separate from Christ. I cannot imagine a world where it said of me that I was separate from Christ. This word, separate from Christ, denotes the idea of being without a person. They did not hear of Christ, nor did they put their hope in him. Their, their hearts weren't comforted with the, the good news of a deliverer to save them from their sins. They were, they were separate, or they were apart from the hope of a Messiah. Messiah. Bear in mind that the Gentiles were not an afterthought in the mind of God. God planned to make known to them the Christ. God, speaking of the roots of Jesse in Isaiah 11.10, declared that the Gentile nations will seek the roots of Jesse, who stands as a banner for the Gentiles. God planned to bring them into the fold. Before time, however, Gentiles in general did not have this hope. They were without this particular hope because they were alienated from God's chosen people. This is a second step Paul takes to encourage Gentile Christians regarding how much their situation has radically changed in Christ. Look at point number two. He reminds them they were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He reminds them they were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Immediately, following Paul's reminder that they were separate from Christ, look at verse 12. He says, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This word, alienated, here in verse 12, communicates the idea of being excluded, which suggests the permanence of of being cut off from someone. It means they lived in a state of complete exclusion. When a married couple gets a divorce, By law, they are permanently excluded from a relationship that they once enjoyed. And in some terrible cases of divorce, one parent can be permanently excluded from having intimate fellowship with children. This is sad. Paul is telling us that they were alienated from relationships with God and his people. Specifically, Paul says, look at the text, they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. The word commonwealth is a term that means citizenship. Paul is using this language of citizenship here to refer to the the government of Israel framed by God. God. It refers to Israel's privileged position as a commonwealth under God's sovereign rule and authority. The people were of Israel were members of the household of Abraham and by extension, people under God's rule. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, God declares to Israel that they are citizens as his holy people his, his set-apart ones. They were set apart from all the nations of the earth. The Lord did not choose them because they were greater than any other nation. The Lord, in keeping his covenant and in love, chose them. And God wanted them to honor this Citizenship by living holy and faithful to him as he was to them. So God was happy to bestow blessings and honor on them. But even when they failed to do so because of sin, and they did, they experienced his abundant mercy and compassion when they repented. But Paul is telling us in verse 12 that these Gentile Christians at a time were alienated from having citizenship with this commonwealth of Israel. How so? Well, at the very least, we know that God's laws excluded them from citizenship. Old Testament laws against marrying Gentiles to prohibiting idolatrous worship with Gentiles served as a way to exclude Gentiles from citizenship. A Gentile could become a Jewish proselyte. Some of those Gentiles served a unique role in Israel's history. Ruth, who was a Moabitess, and Rahab, who was a Canaanite, they come to mind. But in general, Most Gentiles did not become Jews. This this alienation here meant that they they were cut off from God's special protection and provisions. Gentiles did not receive this special designation as God's holy people. They were alienated, Paul says. Now, I will admit that this language of exclusion initially was a challenge for me. I am a person that likes to include people into my life, to invite people into our home, to to make them feel a part of the family. If this describes you too, then you maybe are unsettled by this language of exclusion and alienation. But one of the things to not lose sight of in light of this alienation is the facts of the fall of mankind. When God created humanity, we were created to have intimate fellowship with God with no alienation, no exclusion. God planned to give us knowledge of himself and he wanted us to enjoy a relationship of belonging with him. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they and all of humanity became alienated from him. God sent man out of the garden. Ever since the fall, sinners have been pained with a longing to get back to that closeness with God But the problem is that we can't get back there by ourselves. Our condition of alienation from a holy God was so permanent and so tragic that we could do nothing in our own power to even bring ourselves next to his holy people. Until Christ Jesus came to fulfill the laws that, that once excluded us from the family of God. We were, we were alienated. A sobering of a reminder as being excluded is. It only magnified our desperate condition. This alienation from the citizenship of Israel also means that they were excluded from the rights and privileges of the covenants of promise. This moves us to the third step Paul takes to encourage Gentile Christians regarding how much their situation has radically changed in Christ. Third point on your outline. He reminds them they were once strangers to the covenants of promise. He reminds them they were once strangers to the covenants of promise. Observe verse 12. Paul says... They were, starting from our last point, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. Mentioning the word alienated leads Paul to think of Gentiles as being strangers. But he goes a, a step further and, and he says that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. This word strangers here has the meaning of one who is not a member or does not belong to someone or something. In scriptures, the word stranger speaks of a person who is in a state of being an outsider. There is still a lot for me to learn about what the words covenants of promise means, but I think at the very least... We know that this is a reference to the covenants, the covenants bound up with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But also we might add the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant, which suggests the Paul, Paul's usage of the word covenants, plural. But then he uses this word promise, speaking of a singular promise. This is the first great promise which God spoke to Genesis twelve two through three to Abraham. In that one great promise in Genesis two, Genesis twelve two through three, God promised to make Abraham into a great nation, that he will bless him and make his name great, and that his offspring will be a, a blessing to the nations. These covenants of promise are known as the the backbone of the Bible's story of redemption. They are vitally important in the history of God's chosen people. I can think of a couple reasons why. For one reason, these covenants of promise reminded them of the faithfulness of God during the difficult seasons of life. Write down the reference, Psalms 119, verse 49 through 50. In that verse, the psalmist prays that that his comfort in his suffering is God's covenant promise. He says that God's promise sustained him under affliction. He says, God's promise sustain him under affliction. But there are other times when these covenants of promise reminded them of the faithfulness of God in the midst of the difficulties of their sin. In the book of Nehemiah chapter 9, a significant time when Jewish exiles led by Nehemiah were rebuilding the wall. Near the end of a solemn 31 verses of confession and repentance and remembering the faithfulness of God, in verse 32, the Levites remember God as the one who keeps his covenant. These covenants of promise were powerful in the history of Israel, not because it took away sin, nor did it make them impervious to affliction, but rather they reminded Israel to draw deep from the faithfulness of God. But all the while, these, the Jews were receiving these, these wonderful and, and staggering covenants of promise. Paul says that these Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. This term, stranger, makes it clear that the Gentiles did not belong to these covenants of promise. They could not claim them. His promise was to Abraham and his descendants. This is a a tragic problem, by the way. As we have briefly discussed, these covenants of promise were the backbone of hope in the difficult seasons of life. These covenants of promise pointed Israel to a God who was compassionate and merciful against the backdrop of their sin. But this is the crux of the problem. If Gentiles do not belong to this, what was holding their soul together? What was, what was holding them together in the midst of, of pain and suffering and sin? Where did they turn? How? How how did they live? We can just as well ask this question about ourselves before we became a Christian. What was was holding your soul together in the midst of pain and suffering and sin? The answer to that question is, is actually rather simple, but it's devastating. Nothing. We had nothing. We had no hope. This is is what Paul reminds them next as we move to the fourth step Paul takes to encourage Gentile Christians regarding how their situation has radically changed in Christ. Fourth step. He reminds them that they were once without hope. He reminds them that they were once without hope. Let's read verse 12 again. Paul says, starting at the beginning, Remember at that time you were alienated, you were separate from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Having... No hope. Having no hope, Paul says. These are some of the most terrible words to behold of in all of scripture. Having no hope. Do you have hope today? I'm not talking about the the wishful thinking kind of hope. I am talking about a hope that is a biblical hope. A biblical hope gazes gazes confidently and expectantly into the future, even when there are unknowns. Are you are you with that kind of hope this morning? This word having suggests the idea of, of holding on to with the hand. Something that you can get a grip on. Have you ever tried to uh, hold sand? You grab it and you, you, you squeeze it as tightly as you can, but, but, but it, sleep, it seeps through the crevices of your fingers. Having no hope is like holding on to sand. Paul, in essence, says you have no confident expectation to hold on to. A number of years ago, I started a a non-profit ministry which provided me a way to, to share the gospel with youth that were aging out of the foster care system. If you have adopted a child or have any familiarity with the foster care system, then you know of the hopelessness experienced in the foster care system. In the early years, they lose hope of reunification with their biological parents. Then, when aging out of the foster care system, many experience uh, just the general hopelessness about life. As they get older and they are bounced around from family to family so much, they despair of having a permanent home. Their lives were a series of going from, from one home to the next without any confident expectation to hold on to. Similarly, before Christ came, the Gentiles and us alike were like we're like orphans with no hope, or having no permanent home for our souls. We had no one to truly care for us who thought about doing good to us. We had no one to wipe away the tears or comfort us when we were lonely. We were without hope. Our souls were thirsty for hope, and we thought that maybe if we got that degree, or if we earned that money, or got that job, or married that person, or gave to that charity, that we wouldn't be thirsty for hope anymore. But the more we we drank of that water, the more thirsty we became. You see, hopelessness is not so much about a state of depression or pessimism. There are a lot of optimistic people in the world who are hoping in things with with no eternal or spiritual significance. Hopelessness is a condition of the soul. It is about having no hope spiritually, eternally, to anchor your soul to. It is about having no hope in anything spiritually or eternally significant. And brothers and sisters, there is grave hopelessness in people all around us. And I can tell you why. They are without God. They are without God. This moves us to the fifth step Paul takes to encourage Gentile Christians regarding how much their situation has radically changed in Christ. Point number five, he reminds them that they were once without God in the world. He reminds them they were once without God in the world. Observe the end of verse 12 where Paul says that they were, this is the end of verse 12, without God in the world. Let those those words echo in your memory. Without God in the world. To look at your life and say that you were without God in the world. These words without God is, uh, is actually one Greek word and it is the word atheos, it is where we get our English word for atheist. When we think of an atheist today, we think of someone who says, oh, I don't believe in God. But this word is not merely about not believing God. It means to be without a relationship with God. Pastor uh, Milton helped me to think about our relationship with God in this context and thinking of it as a, as an egg that when you crack it out pours two things, you have knowing God and worshiping God in the first way they were without knowing God in the sense that they had no knowledge of God as Israel had been given. So write down the reference Psalms, Psalm 147, verse 19 and 20. That verse makes it clear that Israel knew God unlike any other nation through the giving of laws. When they trusted God, His laws provided direction and clarity to their whole lives. But the Gentiles were without this particular revelation of God. That's the first idea communicated here, that they had no knowledge of God as Israel had been given. However, they were, with, they were not without God completely. The longing to be in God was there, for God revealed himself to their consciences, but they did not worship him. Scripture teaches that the Gentiles suppressed the truth that they did know about God and instead worshiped unknown gods. God, the scriptures call this idols. Psalm 96.5 says, For all the gods of peoples, all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. In exchange for worshiping the true God, they worship things of the world. I remember 20 years ago, almost to the day, that I was without God. No doubt I was ignorant about many things of God. There were many things that I just didn't know about God. But I did grow up in a Christian home with a pastor with the father who is my pastor, who is actually sitting over there today. So, if you talk to him, I wasn't completely ignorant of who God was. But, in my quest to belong to something or someone, I looked to football and my ethnic identity and earthly pleasures to fulfill the sense of belonging in my life. And it only made me empty. Thinking back to those days, I don't know how it is that I live without having a relationship with God. So I am the chief example that if you, you seek to fill this, this ache, this longing that you have in your soul to belong with anything else in this world but Christ, it is not only doomed to fail, it only deepens the well of of emptiness and loneliness. If you seek to fulfill this longing in any relationship, you are doomed to run yourself into the ground trying to please man. Seek to fulfill this longing in your career you'll run yourself into the ground trying to climb the corporate ladder. Seek to feel that longing in a political party or a racial group. You will be consumed with, with bitter hatred for people who are not like you or who don't think the way you do. Don't you see? We are doomed unless God does something for us that we cannot do ourselves. This is humanity's great desperation. How terrible was our condition? Some of you may be asking the question, why has God planned redemptive history this way? Why all the separation from Christ? Why the strangers? Why the alienation? Why the the hopelessness? Why the the godlessness? Well, in the next verse, God begins to pull back the curtain to answer those questions, taking us to the final step Paul takes to encourage Gentile Christians regarding how much their situation has radically changed in Christ. Point number six, he reminds them that they have now been brought near in and through Christ. He reminds them that they have now been brought near in and through Christ. Observe verse 13. Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Right out the gates, Paul tells us that a glorious change has occurred, and what marvelous words they are. But now in Christ Jesus. Paul says, this statement, but now in Christ Jesus, marks a transition from being outside of the family of God to being inside of the family of God. Being in Christ Jesus speaks of our, our personal union with Christ Jesus. This means as Christians, we have such a union with Christ Jesus that we are so united with Christ Jesus. When God sees him, he sees us. When God sees us, he sees Jesus where Jesus is in relation to God, that's where all who believe in Jesus are in relation to God. Notice this phrase in the middle of verse 13, where Paul says, have been brought near. This phrase, have been brought, is a significant phrase in verse 13. It indicates a past action that has been done on our behalf, that we did not do ourselves. Paul doesn't say, because you are circumcised, you are near. He doesn't say, because of your amazing ability to keep the law, you are near. He doesn't even say, because you are a Jew, you are near. He says, you have been brought near. In other words, this is good news for those who could not bring themselves into the fold of God. You have been brought near, he says. Paul, so he gives two designations here, far off and near. What are these designations? God and Israel were known to be near to each other. God promised to be their God and they were his people. In terms of that polity, they were citizens of the divine and heirs to the promise. This unique relationship the Israelites had with God is repeated in Psalm 148, verse 14, where they are called the people of Israel who are near to him. Not only that, By virtue of proximity to the temple in Jerusalem, Jews were locationally near to God as well. In contrast, the Gentiles, besides this entire alienation we've discussed in verse 12, they also were beyond the borders of Israel. So spatially, they were far off from the temple too. But what of this nearness? From the way I see it, we have been brought near under three banners of a relationship of belonging. The first is that we have been brought near to the presence of God. Our nearness to God is not based on our location to a temple or to a church. The Bible teaches us that that God's temple is our bodies and it is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. God has raised for himself a temple in the bodies of men and women who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Practically speaking, this means that God's spirit is with us wherever we go. Whether we are at home, or at school, or at work, his presence always abides with us through the Holy Spirit. Moreover, this beautiful relationship between the believer and God is one that entails full access to the knowledge of and the ability to worship God. Secondly, we have been brought near to be citizens and members of God's family. We have been brought near to be citizens and members in God's family. The implication of being near in the New Testament is that we are no longer strangers to the things that gave Jews an advantage in the Old Testament. We who were once alienated from citizenship with God's people have been brought near to be holy citizens and members of a spiritual and eternal family called the church. We who were once strangers to the covenants of promise have been brought near to belong to the spiritual blessings of the promise. The third banner is this. We have been brought near to experience a personal relationship of belonging to Christ. We have been brought near to experience a personal relationship of belonging to Christ. We are no longer separate from Christ, but we are not simply united with, with messianic prophecies. Christ Jesus, the Lord, has come and he is the son of God and we have been brought in him. We have been brought near to enjoy the full knowledge of the gospels, to experience the the boundless riches of his love for us through the Holy Spirit and to find the, the fullest fulfillment of our souls ache to belong in him our condition has radically changed, not only as a result of being brought near to Christ, but the change itself happens by the blood of Christ, Paul says. Look at the text, he says, verse 13, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. While being in Christ signifies our union to Christ, the blood of Christ signifies his death for our sins through which we were brought to Christ and brought to God. Excuse me. The death of Christ Jesus absorbed our entire former alienation, our sins, our ignorance, our rejection of God on the cross. And it, and it tips the scales in our favor. And this is the scandal of the gospel. And is that that those who were, were outsiders to the family have been made insiders to the family. And get this, we didn't do anything for it. It was all by the death of Christ Jesus. We did nothing to earn it. So, so, we can rest in that nearness. We can rest in the fact that where Christ is in relation to God that's where all who stand in Christ stand in relation to Christ to God. We can rest in this union because we are near to Christ beyond anything this world can offer. There is no one that is nearer to God than Christ Jesus. And we are in him. At the beginning of this section, we ask the question, why has God planned redemptive history this way? The short answer to that question is this, to bring all things in Christ. That is to show us that our ultimate fulfillment to belong can only be satisfied by Christ Jesus. The only hope for, our, for Jews and Gentiles to have a spiritual and eternal home with God is Christ. Therefore, if you are in Christ, then God says to you that you belong. He says to you, You are home. The Apostle Paul gives us a lot to think about in this passage. By way of application, let's take just a moment to to ponder a few things. Paul's command to remember is powerful and convicting. Everything we have now in our head about Christ, about God, about the promise, about hope, did not always exist. And we did not realize how miserable we were until God opened our eyes. Remembering this kills the temptation to boast in ourselves and it inspires thankfulness and praise and worship and appreciation for the death of Christ. This reminder is also instrumental in shaping our witness to a world living without a sufficient hope in Christ. I pray that the Spirit would energize you to be a bringer of the message of hope to a world that is without hope. While for a time we were excluded from the commonwealth, if you have heard the message of the gospel and trusted in Christ alone for salvation, you are included into the body of Christ where everyone Who is in Christ is a citizen as God's holy people. I want to encourage you to live in light of this holy citizenship by offering yourself to God each day in prayer and private devotions. Seek to live in a way that that honors Him. I find it best that when I fail to live in light of this holy calling as a Christian, I repent and I rest in the assurance that I belong to God because of Christ. As I move in life in this confidence, I I press on to be holy and to, to seek to be blameless as a member of the household of God. We began this message talking about two girls who were treated as outsiders to the family Their experience reminds us as parents that our words and actions have a significant impact in our children. God wants to use our words and our actions to to build our children up and to include them in our life in special and meaningful ways. Remind them that they are part of the family and that they belong. If you have a child that has run away physically or emotionally, perhaps, no matter what, how bad things get, never stop drawing near to God for your refreshment, but also never stop praying for them. If you are treated as an outsider in your world, be comforted that Who God says you are, that is what matters most. Don't allow what others say about you or how they treat you to steal your joy and your faith in God. Reason from the ground that if God says you belong to him because of Christ, then you can rest in that nearness. If, however, this morning you are not in a relationship with God, it is because you are separate from Christ. You must be in Christ to, to not only to be saved, to not only in, inherit eternal life, but to experience the full pleasure of, and, and privilege of belonging to God the Father and God the Son. Christ's invitation to you this morning is to come to Christ by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone for salvation. You can do that today, this very moment. Don't leave here today outside of Christ. You're going to go drive from here and you're going to go to this place that you call your home but i have something to tell you that place where you live that's not your home it's somewhere you eat that's somewhere you sleep but it is not your home that gym you work out at to impress people that's not your home that career ladder that you are climbing that school that you attend none of these are your home Home is where you will spend eternity with God. Will you spend eternity with God or will you say with C.S. Lewis, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all of my life though I never knew it until now. If you are in Christ Jesus, you belong to that real country. The deeper you go in Christ, the greater the revelation you will have that you are home, that you belong. Let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, our hearts long for you. Nothing in this world that we seek can satisfy that longing. You say that that we belong to you, but sometimes we forget. But there is a word that we hear of belonging this morning that is resounding forth in the person of Christ Jesus. Awaken our hearts and our resolve to remember to run to the cross in moments when we are treated in a way that that, is not, that does not reflect who we are in Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, to appreciate Christ and to never take this great salvation and nearness for granted our souls thirst for you god you our you're our everything amen